This morning on the back of your bulletin, you will find Article 10 of our Statement of Faith as derived from the 1853 New Hampshire Confession, and I will read that, and then we will get into the sermon. We believe in sanctification. We believe sanctification is the process by which we are made partakers of God's holiness according to his purpose. Sanctification is a progressive work. It begins in regeneration and continues in the hearts of believers by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit and by God's appointed means. These means include the word of God, self-examination, self-denial, watchfulness, prayer, and the oversight and fellowship of the visible church. Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. This is the visible church that we just read about. It's good to see each of you. And um, for those who have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn to Matthew 11, verses 12 through 25, as David just read for us. And if I haven't met you, my name is Rob. I am the lead pastor here at Citizens Church. And if there's any questions about the statement of faith that we just read or anything that I might say in the sermon, please come up to me afterward and feel free to ask any questions. I'll be up here for a little bit. But a couple months ago, I got this pen. New pen. Very excited about it. I have few hobbies. However, the hobbies that I have, I really enjoy. And one of those hobbies is collecting pens. So I have several fountain pens. And this is a ballpoint pen. I have not been a fan of ballpoint pens for various reasons. But a friend of mine he got this same pen, and he had me try it. And I thought, this is great. I'm, I'm sold. So I got on Amazon, purchased this pen. It came in the mail, started using it for about a week, and then quickly realized that it's not writing anymore. And not only did I buy the pen, but I also bought special ink to go with the pen, as recommended by my trustworthy friend. And about a week in, this pen is no longer writing. So I'm like, okay, it must have been a bad cartridge. So I threw this cartridge out, put another one in, because it came with several, and I start writing it, and it has issues again. And I'm writing in my journal, trying to get this thing to work, and I'm sitting here messing with it, trying to get it to, to scribble, trying it on different pieces of paper, and it's just, it's not working. Well, little did I realize, because I'm not familiar with ballpoint pens, occasionally stuff gets on the nib of the pen, and you just have to wipe it off, and then you can start writing again. I didn't realize that. Threw out a perfectly good cartridge because of that, but I was super frustrated because I'm like, look, this is a pen. The one thing it's meant to do is write. How is it that after a week, this thing is not writing? Which slides into what we're talking about today because we do, as people, get frustrated when things are created for a, spe a specific purpose and they're not fulfilling that purpose. And this morning, the text that we're looking at, we see that God's people were created to bear fruit, to walk in righteousness. This is what we were created to do. Just like that pen is created to write, we are created to bear fruit. And when I say bear fruit, I'll say that a lot throughout the sermon this morning. When I say bear fruit, it means walk in righteousness. Walk according to what God's word says. Do what he deems is good, not wicked. And as we do that, we will glorify God. As we do that, we'll have greater assurance, as Jonathan was talking about, John Owen, his wrestle with assurance. As we bear fruit, we will have greater assurance of our salvation. We'll prove to others that we are, in fact, Jesus' disciples, that we're followers of the righteous one. 
and will also be a compelling witness to the world. So we'll glorify God. We'll have greater personal assurance of our salvation. We'll prove to others that we are disciples, and we will have, or we will be a compelling witness to the watching world. And so for those who have been with us, we have been going through the book of Mark. This is Mark's gospel. is written by John Mark in the 50s or 60s A.D., 20 to 30 years after Jesus' ministry. And the theme that we've continuously come back to is that it's Jesus restoring his wayward people. And last week, we saw Jesus entering Jerusalem. The disciples and Jesus had been making their way too, and he finally got to Jerusalem. And then he enters in as king on Palm Sunday. We see that this is the kickoff to Holy Week. And so that, last week, was Palm Sunday. And now this week, we see the next two days, Monday and Tuesday of Holy Week, leading right up to his crucifixion on Friday and his resurrection on Sunday. So as we go through this passage, you can find the points in your bulletins. But before we dive in, let me pray, and then we'll get going. Father, we thank you for the gift to be able to gather around Christ to be reminded of the gospel, to be reminded of what has been done for us, to see the life of Jesus explicitly here. God, we pray that you would prepare our hearts to receive what your word says. I ask that you would help me speak clearly. Lord, we ask that our hearts would be receptive to what your word says. Not what I say, but what your word says. God, we thank you for the gift to be ministers of the gospel each of us, to be able to proclaim this gospel. We pray for other churches that are doing that this morning. They have Cornerstone Community Church down the road. We pray that they would have a fruitful gospel ministry, that they would faithfully proclaim the explicit gospel. We pray for Proclamation Church in Mount Vernon as well, that they would do the same thing. And this morning, Lord, we're reminded of 1 Timothy 2, where you tell us to pray for our leaders. God, we pray for President Biden. Pray for Vice President Harris, that you would give them wisdom as they lead this country, that they would pursue righteousness. We pray that you would bring them to repentance and faith, that they would be transformed by the gospel and that we would not view them as too far gone, but we would be faithfully praying for them. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would work in them. We pray for Governor DeWine, as he needs wisdom, leading our state. Pray for Mayor Ginther, leading Columbus, and Mayor Kakuzi, leading Westerville. Or give them wisdom. Give them boldness to pursue what is good and just. Or give our Congress, on the national level and the state level, wisdom. Give them courage. Or we pray that their hearts would be transformed by the gospel. And God, we pray also for our judges. Think of the Supreme Court, or as they wrestle with weighty matters. We pray that they, their judgments, would be righteous judgments. Now, Lord, as we look at your word, we ask that you would do what only you can do, that you would give us eyes to see, that you would give us ears to hear. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This morning, three points. We have a fruitless tree, a fruitless temple, and a better way. Again, that's right there in your bulletin. So starting with the fruitless tree, we see, we talked about just a little bit ago, verses 1 through 11, Jesus came with his disciples into Jerusalem. 
and we see in verse 12 that on the following day they came from Bethany. So at the end of verses 1 through 11, Jesus and his disciples went back to Bethany. And so now they're coming back to Jerusalem. And just as a reminder, Bethany was on the east side of Jerusalem. Ezekiel 11, he saw a vision of God removing the glory, his glory from the temple and placing it on the mountains to the east of Jerusalem. Those mountains to the east happen to be the Mount of Olives, where Bethany is. So when Jesus and his disciples come down from the Mount of Olives, from Bethany, what we learned last week was that it was the glory of God being returned to Jerusalem, returned to the temple. And he came as a king, as a humble king, fulfilling Zechariah 9.9. And he returns as God's glory, Hebrews 1.3. He is the perfect exact imprint of God's glory in the flesh. And so now when he returns to Bethany with his disciples, we see a little note that he's hungry. This is an important note because it sets up everything else that we're getting ready to read. We're going over a a good amount of verses this morning, and I was tempted to, to shrink it down and try to go over less because, especially toward the end, there's so much. But I think putting them together is going to help us see clearly what's happening here. So this note that he is hungry sets the stage for what we're getting ready to read. And so we see in verse 13 that Jesus, seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. So we need to know some things about fig trees to understand what's going on here. So some things to know about fig trees is that fig trees first bear fruit and then bear leaves. So the fruit comes first and then the leaves come. The fruit typically comes in March or April and the leaves follow in April. So when Jesus is hungry, he goes to this tree that has leaves that make the claim that there's fruit here because the leaves come after the fruit. So if he sees leaves on this tree, he's expecting there's going to be fruit. He goes up to it and we read that he doesn't find any fruit. And we see the reason why. The text tells us that it was not the season for figs. And so Jesus' response seems a little harsh because it wasn't the season for figs. He shouldn't have expected fruit, right? That's how it reads when you first look at it. But if it wasn't the season for figs, then there shouldn't have been any leaves. The tree was making a claim that there's fruit here. It may not be the season for figs, but there are leaves, and leaves for fig trees indicate fruit. So it may have been out of season, but is making the claim that there's fruit here because there were leaves on it. So when Jesus goes up to it, he says, all right, there's leaves here. There should be fruit to eat. Gets there, and there's no fruit to eat. And so then he makes a prophetic statement. We read in verse 14, he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. So his disciples hear this phrase confirming what this prophetic statement was. He's saying, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. Now, that phrase is important because it's indicative of what's getting ready to come. But before we get to that, it's important to note that the fig tree, this is the point from this first one, the fruitless tree, the fig tree had the outward signs, had the outward appearance that there was fruit. But when Jesus approached it, there was, in fact, no fruit. It was hypocritical. Its leaves communicated fruit when, in fact, there was none. Some of you in here like to golf. I like to golf. I'm not good at golf, so I know 
that the struggle is real when it comes to getting on the golf course. And I have a friend who is similar. He's, I, I can say it, he's worse than me at golf, which is saying something. And I used to go on these, um, these trips to Perry Park down in Kentucky with a church that we grew up in and went a few times and it was just a three-day golfing trip. You go with a bunch of the men and you just golf all day for three days and enjoy each other's fellowship and it's a good time. And now my buddy, who's worse than me, shows up and he's got this fresh bag, really nice new mint golf clubs. I mean, he spent a pretty penny on these clubs and he and I aren't close enough to where I know how much he's golfing or anything like that. But he gets there and I'm like, oh shoot, I'm bad. I know he's typically bad, but he just dropped a pretty penny on these clubs. He's probably been playing a lot. So I'm likely the worst one here now. And so I was a little concerned because he brought these fresh clubs out and he's showing everybody his brand new clubs. And it would communicate that he is at least, he's invested a good bit on the clubs. He's probably invested a decent amount of time on the golf course and gotten better. But we get to that first hole and I'm in his group and he hasn't gotten a lick better. <laughs> he's still noticeably worse than me, which is very encouraging for me in that moment. <laughs> but his golf clubs communicated that he had invested some time into honing his skill with golf, and he, in fact, had not, or it didn't pay off dividends. And Jesus, coming to this fig tree, it gives off the impression that there are fruit, that there is fruit, and yet there is no fruit to be found. It's inconsistent. And so, Christian, this morning, question for us is, are we bearing fruit? We see a list of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, love, joy, peace, Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Are we consistently and increasing measure bearing that fruit? Or are our lives more so indicated by the opposite of those things? Unloving, grumbling, divisive, argumentative, impatient, irritable, wicked, inconsistent, doubting, harsh, quick to speak. If you go through that list in Galatians 5, and I think of the opposite word, which one is more indicative of your life? If you are a Christian, you're not going to perfectly bear these fruits, but they should be in incremental increases, be more and more evident in your life. You cannot claim to be a Christian if you do not produce fruit. So men in the room, are you leading by example? As leaders, are you leading by example? Are you producing fruit in your life? Women, are you cultivating fruit in yourself and others? And if you're not a believer this morning, I would ask you, what standard are you using? If you have not embraced the standard that we see in Scripture, the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, and if you're not using God's Word as your standard for bearing fruit, if you're not a believer this morning, thrilled that you're here, but what standard are you using? Are you using your own standard? What you feel is right? In which case, if you feel it is right, and then someone does something different than that, maybe they feel that what they're doing is right, and another person does something, they feel that it's right, who's to say who is actually in the right there? So if you're basing on your own feelings, your own perceptions of what you think righteousness is, it's shaky ground to be on, but maybe you say that, you're basing off what society says. If the overall society agrees that this is good for our society, good for our culture, then that would seem right. If, if a law is passed, then society agrees that this is good and right. 
in which case we run into the problem of Nazi Germany. They thought a lot of things were okay. We can't base our standard on ourselves. We can't base our standard on society at large. We have to base our standard on the thing that is immovable. God's word. God doesn't change. It's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. So when we consider what is righteous, what is righteousness, as we consider what it looks like to bear fruit, we have to have a standard of what that looks like. And it has to be an immovable standard. And just to put a word out, maybe you're hearing this and you're feeling like, man, I, I don't see as much fruit as what I would like to. I want to encourage you that bearing fruit is a slow process. One degree of glory at a time, as the Apostle Paul says. This is a slow, inch-by-inch inch process. It's not that you're going to become a Christian and the next day be bearing all kinds of fruit. There should be an overall progressive, as, that, as our statement of faith talks about, a progressive sanctification. It happens more and more. You might take two steps forward and one step back. But the mark of a Christian is that you are living a lifestyle of repentance and you're trying to continue to pursue righteousness. So church together, when we see fruit, let's rejoice. Let's be encouraged by that. Let's pray for fruit. Ask the Lord to provide fruit. Let's encourage one another to walk in righteousness. And so with this fruitless tree in mind, we now move into a fruitless temple. So verse 15, we now see Jesus entering. He says, we read that they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Jesus enters his temple. He's returned to Jerusalem. He's returned to the temple. He enters in, and he, he's not happy. There's all kinds of buying and selling going on. And he later says what the temple is meant to be, and it's not fulfilling that. So we see this buying and selling going on. And something to know is that in this time, this buying and selling, it wasn't just like a farmer's market. Okay, This is big commerce that is going on in the temple. Josephus, an early church historian, he recorded this about what was going on in the temple during Passover. It said that 255,600 lambs, so 255,600 lambs were sacrificed at Passover in AD 66. Passover is one day. So in AD 66, there were over 250,000 lambs sacrificed at this temple. So this is big commerce that is going on here. Jesus enters in and he's not happy. And there's a note there about the pigeons, about those who sold and those who bought in the temple. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. So we just read about lambs. That was the prescribed sacrifice. But if you could not afford a lamb, then Leviticus 5 and Leviticus 12 talk about how you can purchase pigeons instead. So those who were selling pigeons were in the temple selling pigeons to those who could not afford a lamb. So they're already selling to the poor. And what was happening is they were taking advantage of them. You know how when you go to an airport, you get in and you kind of want to get your coffee before you get through the gates? Because as soon as you get through the gates, you're stuck. And the prices for coffee, the prices for food go up. So you're stuck. You go to a football game, you go to a baseball game, whatever it is. As soon as you get through the gates, they know you can't leave, grab food, and come back. And so the prices are up. 
these people who are selling pigeons to the poor are selling them at exorbitant prices because they know they've made a, a great trek to come and worship God. They're not going to go back now and try to purchase pigeons somewhere else. They're there. So these people who are selling pigeons, who are engaging in this big commerce, are taking advantage of the poor. And so Jesus calls them a den of robbers. He says that his house is meant to be a house of prayer, which is pulled straight from Isaiah 56, 7, a house of prayer for all peoples. So he teaches them what the temple's proper purpose is, but he says, in fact, it's, it's not fulfilling that house of prayer for all peoples. It's actually a den of robbers. And this phrase, den of robbers, is pulled from on the roads. There would be robbers, there would be thieves, and they would all seek shelter in a cave. And there would be a den of thieves who would all be seeking shelter together in this cave that's off the road. And then the next day comes and they all go their separate ways and they go about their, their stealing. And then they return back to a common place where there's shelter. And Jesus says that the temple now has become a den of robbers. He's pronouncing this indictment against those who sell. He tells them they can't carry anything through the temple. There's this irreverent practice of people using the temple as a shortcut to cut across town. The temple's big. You heard how many sacrifices were going on over 250,000 in one day? The temple's big. And so if you need to get from one side of town to the other and you have to go around the temple, that can be inconvenient. So what was often happening is they would just step up the steps and just cut through the temple. And that was going on. The priests allowed it. And Jesus now comes in and he sees that his this temple, this place where people are meant to be able to connect with God, to be able to communicate with God, to be able to worship Yahweh. This temple has now become a place where people are trying to get rich off the poor and use it as a shortcut. So the priests and scribes, we see in verse 19, that they heard what Jesus was doing and they were seeking a way to destroy him. And here's the reason why. Because these priests and these scribes, they recognized that the people are appreciating what Jesus said. You can read that, that in verse 19, verse 18, and the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. So the crowd hears him. They see his teaching. They're astonished. And there's a stark contrast between Jesus and the priests of the temple. Jesus is taking over the temple. He is making some claims about the way the temple is being ran. He says it's not a house of prayer for all people. In fact, it's become a den of robbers, which is an indictment against the priest. And Jesus drives them out. Jesus cleanses the temple. So the temple, with all of its outward appearances, all these sacrifices going on, this place where people know that they can go here, and this is where we're supposed to meet with God, this temple with all of its outward appearances, when Jesus enters in, what does he find? He finds no fruit, just like the fig tree. There's outward appearances of fruit, but upon closer examination, there is no fruit to be found. It's spiritually fruitless. Those who came to the temple to be spiritually fed found no spiritual fruit. It's like going to a restaurant that doesn't serve food. You go there hungry, you sit down, go to give your order, and they say, no, 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 we don't, we don't serve food here. You go to the temple to be spiritually fed, you should be able to find spiritual fruit. 
And the priests failed to worship God faithfully, and so therefore the temple was defiled and the temple became worthless. Sinclair Ferguson talking about this. He says, had the priests any sense of dignity or authority, they would have cleansed God's sanctuary long before. So the priests were not doing their priestly responsibility of cleansing the temple and mediating on behalf of the people. Rather, the temple was defiled and they were stealing from the people. So Christian, as portable temples, are there sins or are there habits that we need to drive out of our own lives? The way that Jesus came into the temple and he drove these things out. Are there things in our own lives that we need to drive out? Things that are keeping us from communing with God. Are there sins, are there habits, are there practices that we need to confess to God? That we need to turn away from? We've seen now a fruitless tree, a fruitless temple. And so now we look at a better way. Look with me in verse Verses 20 and 21. So this is, the, this is Tuesday. We saw on Monday, Jesus cursed this fig tree. Then he goes into the temple and cleanses the temple. And now on Tuesday, we read, As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. We see in this passage what's called a Markin sandwich, right? Funny term, Markin sandwich. So throughout the book of Mark, we see instances where Mark is trying to make a point, and so he sandwiches two stories together. So he has one story, and then he doesn't conclude that one. He puts something in the middle, and then he comes back to it, right? And this instance right here is another one of a Markin sandwich, where he talks about the temple, or he talks about the fig tree, and then we see the temple, and then he goes back to the fig tree. Now, whenever you see that throughout the book of Mark, typically what happens in the middle is the main thing. That's the thing to pay close attention to. And so the focus of this passage is not even on the fig tree. It's on the temple and it's on the people. And notice that this fig tree was withered to its roots. It was dead. It was totally done. It's no longer going to produce fruit. Jesus' statement about how no one's ever going to eat fruit from you again came true. Jesus is right. He made a prophetic statement, and it came to pass the very next day. This fig tree is now entirely withered. Now, throughout the Old Testament, it's common for fig trees to be representative of Israel. And so it's not a coincidence that this passage, that Jesus would go up to a fig tree and make a prophetic pronouncement that no one is going to eat fruit from you again. Anyone who comes hungry to this fig tree is no longer going to be fed because you had the outward appearance of fruit, but there was, in fact, no fruit. And so now, Jesus says that the spiritually hungry will never be fed from the temple again. Sinclair Ferguson, no, excuse me, the Pillar New Testament commentary says this about that. It says that what Jesus does in the temple goes beyond a purging or corrective act. He's laying an axe at the root of the temple as an institution. He's laying an axe at the root of the temple as an institution. Together with the subsequent events of Holy Week, Mark portrays the clearing of the temple not as its restoration, but as its disillusion. 
not as its restoration. The temple isn't being restored. The temple is being dissolved. It's being done away with. It's withered to its roots. Its ministry is no longer going to be required. So then we see in verses 22 and 23. So if people can't go to the temple now to be spiritually fed, if people can't go to the temple now to, to bear fruit, then how do we bear fruit? Because it seems like after we read up to verse 22, it seems like it's about fig tree, temple, fig tree. But then Jesus makes this random response about prayer, right? It seems a little bit disjointed, but it's not. It's not. So follow me here. Jesus is describing to them how to bear fruit. How to bear fruit. So we're no longer dependent on the temple to bear fruit. So Jesus responds by saying, how do you bear fruit? And he says this, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Jesus says, have faith in God. If you want to bear fruit, start with having faith in God. Hebrews 11 tells us that bearing fruit is impossible apart from faith. It reads, without faith it is impossible to please God. So if we want to bear fruit, Jesus tells us, have faith in God. That's the first thing. And then he says something about mountains being taken up and thrown into the sea. So, what does that mean? Really, are we going to be people who are just playing catch with mountains, seeing who can throw them further into the sea than the next person whose faith is greater? That's not what he's getting at. Jesus is making the point that he can do the impossible, that through faith in God, the impossible can be done. Context here is vital. So, so here's something to, to, to know about the Bible that you have. It's not a collection of fortune cookie statements. It's where we say, oh, okay, if I want this, I just have to pray for it. Oh, if I need help here, I just got to find this first. You always have to read things in context. And context here is pivotal. It's, It's vital. It's absolutely important. So in trying to give greater context to this passage, these verses 22 and 23, John MacArthur comments, he says, great rabbis and spiritual leaders who could solve difficult problems and seemingly do the impossible were given the title rooter up of mountains. So these great teachers in Jesus' day were given the title, if they could solve these hard problems, if there was a a difficult problem and this great teacher was able to seemingly find the impossible and find a solution to it, then people would call him a rooter up of mountains. You've rooted up that mountain of a problem. You took care of it. You are so wise. That was the phrase that was given to people who could do the seemingly impossible when it came to these mountains. And so Jesus is saying that have faith in God, that to have faith in God is to trust that he can do the seemingly impossible. We must trust God to do the impossible. We must trust him to raise the dead. We are spiritually dead. We are spiritually destroyed apart from Christ. We must depend entirely on him to be raised to life. We must depend entirely on him to be reconciled to a holy God, that that God would reconcile a rebellious sinner. Do you realize the chasm between us and God? Him being perfectly holy, eternal, 
greater than what we can even wrap our minds around, and yet we are small, seemingly insignificant. We've rebelled against him. All of creation has done what he's called it to, and yet we, as part of that creation, are the only ones who look at him and say, no, I'll do it my way. And yet God reconciles us to him. Something he does not have to do. He does the impossible. He raises sinners, dead sinners, back to life. He reconciles the rebellious back to a holy God. We must trust God to do the impossible. That's what verses 22 and 23 are getting at. But then we look at verses 24 and 25, where we read, Whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive your trespasses. So we see now what fruit looks like. Have faith in God, but then also live as one who has received forgiveness. So this passage could easily be used to advocate prosperity theology. If you have enough faith, then you'll be healthy, wealthy, and prosperous. You'll see this peddled by people like Joel Osteen, T.D. Jakes, Joyce Meyer, Creflo Dollar, Kenneth Copeland, and there's several others that could be listed here. This is not a passage for prosperity theology. This is a passage that says, if you want to bear fruit, it starts with having faith in God, and then you must live as one who has received forgiveness. So if anyone, if you need to extend forgiveness to anyone, then do it. You've been forgiven much. So what would be consistent of someone who's been forgiven much is to forgive others. So Jesus is saying here, when you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, such your Father also is in heaven, may forgive your trespasses. The better way that we're getting at with this point is that rather than relying on ourselves to bear fruit, we must have faith in God. We must look to Him. And if we are to bear fruit, we must have faith in God to do the impossible. We have faith, and we live as those who have received forgiveness. So, Christian, are you living as one who has received forgiveness? Are you living a lifestyle of repentance? Matthew 3, 8 talks about bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. Bearing fruit in that's consistent with repentance. Are we forgiving others? And then as you go about your walk, as you grow in your knowledge of who God is, you will also, in the same proportion, understand how sinful you are. So think of like a, a sideways V, right? As you grow in your knowledge of who God is, you realize how sinful and how wicked we are apart from him. So we must remind ourselves again and again and again of Christ's righteousness. The only way we will bear fruit is if we abide in him. You can't earn reconciliation through your own efforts. Ultimately, no sin can dwell with God. Even as sinners, we then, from this point, try to live a perfect life. And let's say we accomplish that. Let's say from this point on, we live a perfect life. There's still past sin that needs to be addressed. No sin can dwell with God. And so we need an outside righteousness. We need the seemingly impossible. All who are in Adam, all who are not in Christ, all who are in Adam are marked by the fruit that leads to death. 
the fruit that was taken in the garden as an act of rebellion against God. But all who are in Christ have received a greater fruit, a perfect fruit. Sinclair Ferguson, again, talking about this passage, says, Israel, like the fig tree, showed the outward signs of bearing fruit. But those who approached it spiritually, spiritually hungry, found none. Although planted by God and nurtured by his servants, the people of God were spiritually barren. Like vine branches, which bore no fruit, they would be cast aside. You see what Jesus did with the fig tree? He said, you've given signs of fruit, but there's actually none there. He curses it, and the very next day it's withered to the root. Same thing with the temple. He's, preventing, or he's calling out the temple for not bearing fruit. Then he's laying the axe to the root of the temple, saying this ministry is no longer going to be fruitful. It's no longer going to be where people receive spiritual nourishment. And what Sinclair Ferguson said sounds an awful lot like John 15. Starting in verse 5, I am the vine. This is Jesus speaking. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. You see that withering language. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. See, that, those four verses sound an awful lot like the passage that we're in this morning. And Jesus is saying that if you ask according to the Father's will, if you abide in me, then you're going to find that a lot of your prayers are going to end up being answered because they're going to be to glorify God, to glorify Him, which is ultimately why we were created. Jesus said, by this, by bearing fruit, my Father is glorified. We see this in Isaiah 43. That's, that's why God's people were created. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, which, by the way, just a little plug, catechisms are these documents of short questions and answers. They're great discipleship tools. No matter what your age is, it's a great opportunity just to, to refresh yourself of what the faith is by reading some of these catechisms. The Westminster Shorter Catechism is arguably the most popular. And in the very first question, it says, what is the chief end of man? What is the chief end of man? What are we ultimately here for? Very first question in this catechism. And the answer is that man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And Jesus says that my father is glorified by us bearing fruit. And when we do that, we prove to be his disciples. So God's people are created to bear fruit because the bearing of the fruit allows us to enjoy God and to glorify him. It strengthens our assurance and it provides a compelling witness to the world. This morning, talk about that pen. Don't be a pen that doesn't write, that has all the outward appearances of fulfilling the function that it was created for, but yet not being able to fulfill that function. If we are to bear fruit, we must abide in Christ. You can't just flip a switch and say, I'm going to bear fruit today. We must be dependent on Christ. We must abide in him. Otherwise, we will not bear fruit that lasts. 
Christians walk in righteousness. Christians bear fruit. But we do that by abiding in Jesus. We submit to him as king. We trust in his words as our prophet. And then we go to him for reconciliation as our priest. Submit to him as king. We embrace his words as our prophet, and then we trust him for reconciliation as our great priest. We see Jesus, again, here it is. Jesus is prophet, priest, king, right? We've heard that before. This, these passages from last week and this week are pulling all that together. Verses 1 through 11, he enters in, down from the Mount of Olives, from the east, Bethany, humbly as king. They throw their cloaks under him as a sign of we are embracing you as king, and Jesus enters in as a humble king. And then, in verses 12 through 14 that we just went over this morning, we see Jesus as prophet prophetically speaking over Israel's ministry. He does this over the fig tree, and it's indicative of what's going to happen with the temple. And then we see him as priest, purifying the temple, standing in between us and God as meteor, 100% God and 100% man, which is absolutely important because if he's not 100% God, then he cannot represent God in this reconciliation process. And if he's not 100% man, then he cannot represent man. He is both. And as a man, he bore the fruit required that would lead to life. We need fruit, not the fruit that marks Adam that leads to death, but the fruit that leads to life. And we cannot generate it on our own, but he has produced it. And anyone who would call on him as their Lord and as their Savior would receive that fruit and be reconciled to God forevermore. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for providing Jesus, our great high priest who mediates on our behalf, our prophet who speaks we pray that you would help us to embrace him as the word, as your words, and as our king. Lord, help us to submit to him, to entrust him, to pursue his glory as faithful citizens of his kingdom. God, we ask that we would glorify the king. Help us to bear fruit. Holy Spirit, we need your help to bear fruit. We cannot do this on our own. We recognize that. We are asking that you would lead us into the presence of Christ, that we would abide in him as the vine, and that we as the branches would produce much fruit. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.